0: This week, it is such a pleasure for me to introduce our two speakers. Um, I am a big fan of Stephanie's work, and her recent book, Gender and Work uh, in Global Value Chains Capturing the Gains, is one of the best books that I've read in development studies in the last couple of years. So I really wanted to invite her to come and speak to you guys. Um, The book is kind of building on on a long career that is still continuing on uh, gender and inequality within global value chains, looking at the way that the global economy has been restructured, how production and consumption have been restructured, and teasing out the kind of gendered impacts of that. Stephanie is somebody who's worked all over the world uh, on these issues. She's published extensively, but she has also worked in a kind of practical way, both with NGOs as well as private actors like supermarkets, on trying to improve the working conditions of women across the world. Um, I think that she straddles that balance between kind of very critical scholarship that's kind of critical of the actors involved in these chains, as well as a kind of strategic engagement with them, um, which is a very hard balance <laughs> to do. I also think that her book, although it's focused on gender, I think it's actually really also a book about ICTs and digitization, the way that global value chains have become increasingly data-driven. And I like the way that this is kind of not the focus of her work, but more in the background, more embedded within these broader transformations in terms of globalization, changing consumer preferences, and the way that kind of plays out within the global economy. So it is a real treat to have her speak to you today, and I'm very grateful that she's come to join us. Um, We also have our own Kate Maha. Some of you may have already, uh, have you been teaching DB400 this term? Not teaching, but I've been doing a little sideline. Okay. (laughs) And she's also uh, the the person who teaches the informal economy course uh, within the department, and a lot of her work has been looking at the informal economy, Um, as well as social policy, and increasingly also in digital technologies. Her own book, uh, Identity Economics, was also a favorite book of mine. Um, So it's a real sort of matching of of great minds today, Um, and I'm really looking forward to the discussion afterwards. Uh, So as usual, we'll first have Stephanie speak for 45 minutes, thereabouts, and then Kate will give her comments for 15 minutes, and then we'll open it up to the Q&A. Again, I want to remind you guys that fortune favors the brave, so if you have a burning question, don't wait until the end to put up your hand. but hopefully we'll have plenty of time for lots of questions. So without further ado, shall we welcome Stephanie to the podium. Uh,
1: thank you very much and, and for the invitation to be here, it's great privilege. Um, the LFC um, has always been um, very close to my heart, and all the, the research um, and, and that is carried on here, and, and so many brilliant students that have come out of various of the masters programs at the LSE. um And it's also great to be with Kate as a discussant, whose, again, whose work I greatly admire. So I'm going to talk about. Um, I mean, uh, just uh, about half of the talk will be related to the book uh, because I wasn't sure how much people. I mean, some of you might have read it, some of you might not. So bear with me if if it is something you've read and you're very familiar with my arguments. But I wanted to just give an overview. And then the second half is really what's going on now. What are the contemporary issues um, in relation to gender and global value chains? And I'm gonna focus on three things. One is innovation and technology. Second is COVID, what was the impact of COVID? And thirdly, and very briefly, but this is where we don't really know the outcomes, the sorts of global shifts that are are taking place with with big implications for global value chains and for people who work um, in them. Um, So just as a sort of a framing, um, just roughly um, it's it's, uh, argued that approximately um, somewhere between 50 and 80% of global trade passes through global value chains. Um, Very difficult to get the data, by the way. So that data issue is really critical because most data is collected at the point of export and import. So trade is counted solely when a product crosses a border. The reality is that in complex global value chains, commodities can cross borders multiple times. If you've got an iPhone on you, it's probably got the components from 26 countries, if not more, in it. And many of those components will have multiple times cross borders. So the statistical way of of acquiring data and information based on trade between nation states, when you're in a global value chain world, doesn't really work. Because they're organized in much more complex ways. So a rough estimate, World Development Report 2020, was that there was a big increase over time. Um, from the late 70s, um, and uh, the, a slight decline recently um, in the last, well, we're a bit ahead of 2015. Their date was up to 2015. So, one of the big players, what's the key of a global, global value chain is that the trade is coordinated by, primarily by very large multinational companies. Um, especially retailers. A lot of my own work on the gender side is focused on retailers, but other multinational companies are also heavily involved in coordinating. Um, and I'll go through in a bit more detail in a minute how that coordination takes place. But basically, a company like Walmart doesn't just go out to the local wholesale market and put in an order to fill their shelves for the next week or the next month. They pre-program <laughs> Nine months in advance, often more, and not only pre-programmed with their immediate suppliers, but also with their indirect suppliers. So a Walmart buyer might be negotiating with the person who, uh, the company that is bringing the product to them, plus the, the the factory that produces them, plus some of the input suppliers into the factory that produces those commodities. So these are highly coordinated value chains. This is not trade in the classical sense. The expansion of global value chains, over, particularly since the 1980s, when you've got a lot of outshoring and offshoring, and when you've got a big shift in production, uh, in the sourcing of of manufactured goods especially, and and agri-food, and other goods, um, that used to be primarily in Europe and North America, and a lot of that sourcing was increasingly shifted over to developing countries, to lower income countries. Uh, one of the reasons for those shifts was deregulation of markets. Another reason for that shift was that, that you could get cheaper labor, and therefore cheaper goods, from countries with lower labor costs. So there were different drivers. Um, in terms of the number, and, and, and one of the outcomes of that process of, of, of global um, outsourcing was that it drove massive increase and helped to drive a massive increase in employment in developing countries, in lower income countries, but very significantly, I mean, a, 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 a large proportion of people working in these global value chains were women. So it actually generated jobs, uh, particularly uh, for women who in many countries had previously not had paid work. Um, not always, but in many countries that was the Um, So, you've got this talk about the feminization of work or the feminization of employment. We don't have good data for it, just as we don't have good data for global value trade through global value chains because it only looks, the data really only comes at the point of the border. We also don't have very good data for uh, uh, the number of workers working in global value chains because if you simply take Data from producers at the export level—you've only got part of the value chain. You're not looking at all the outsourcing that's going on within a country that feeds into an export good that is then finally exported. So the data we do have—and um, this is a bit old, some of this data—but it, it's the data that it, it's quite a lot of time trying to collect it, um, uh, and it should come with a health warning. Um, but uh, for China garments. China garments, apparel, big, big uh, uh, value chain, global value chain focus, 5 million workers, approximately 80% of those are women. Bangladesh garments, uh, currently around 3.5 million workers, um, roughly 55 to 70% of those are women. Um, South African fruit, 400,000, probably a bit more now, probably near a half a million. Over half of those are women. And so we could go on. And very importantly, don't forget, it's not just waged work that was generated, but also small in agri-food. Smallholders are also often, for some commodities, play a critical role in, in the production of those commodities. And women can play a key role in, that, in those commodities as well. So if you take uh, something like cocoa, West African cocoa, 70% of cocoa comes from West Africa. If you're a chocoholic like me, mountains. 25% of the recognised farmers are women, but 45 to 50% of the actual work is done by women. So, but often as contributing family labour. So, so we can see that there are a, a significant millions and millions of working value chains. The OECD says it's 400, and, uh, or the ILS is 453 million jobs, 42% female. But that excludes lower-income countries, and a lot of the labour-intensive sourcing is from lower-income countries. It excludes informal workers, and it excludes casual workers. So that's just the tip of the iceberg. Um, so just briefly, um, uh, and, I, and I'm really going to have to put sort of my... Uh, Sort of the key arguments of the book into a bit of a nutshell here, but this is just a very simplified um, global value chain. Um, and the key of it is that, that, as I said earlier, someone like Walmart will coordinate right the way through to the inputs, not just the manufacturer through the distributors through to the final retail. Um, but also, very importantly, is that the lead firms, the buyers, the retailers, the multinationals, govern the chain. They don't own production, very, very rarely, but they control what the the key producers in the chain do to a very high level. Um, Sometimes down to, 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 I mean, the the level of detail is quite phenomenal. I haven't got a lot of time, but I could give you examples later on. Um, So if you go and buy something from Next, for example, um, the, the label will have been put on in the factory, say in Bangladesh or in China or in India, with all with the barcode, with all the detail about what, how it was produced, where it was produced, what the final retail price is, etc., etc. This is highly coordinated, um, and uh, uh, and the governance of this and, and the standards that are used to govern the chains are also really critical. Um, but each segment of any chain, particularly if it crosses borders, which many do, will be embedded in local labor markets, and it's those local labor markets that are highly gendered. And it's from those local labor markets that, that both men and women are drawn into production in different ways. Some as kind of core workers, often with quite good benefits, but often as casual workers, small holders, etc. And the key argument in my book, which I'm going to elaborate a bit more in a, in a minute, is that particularly with the retail value chains, a big dimension that underpinned the expansion of retail value chains, uh, which are highly consumer focused, what really underpinned their, their expansion was the commercialization of reproductive work. So basically my argument, in a, in a nutshell, is work that was traditionally done in the home or in households, largely by women, largely unpaid for uh, for free, has slowly been drawn into commercial production. And as it's drawn into commercial production, women have been increasingly drawn in to the production of those goods. So these retailers, and that's really focusing more on the retailers specifically. Retailers are highly consumer focused. They watch their customers like hawks. Don't know how many of you in this room have loyalty cards, supermarket loyalty cards. If you do, the reta- those retailers know more about you than you know about yourself. Because they don't only know they don't only know everything you buy. They know if you've got a slight alcohol problem.
2: They know if
1: you constantly suffer from headaches. They know whether you've got pets, they know how many children you've got. There's all sorts of information they get immediately and the information you've given them, but they also profile you based on publicly available information. So on top of that, they'll know where you live, what types of postcode you have, etc., etc. Now what really interested me, and, I, and I've got to be careful of the time, but um, what really drew me into the gender dimension of global value chains, and I was working on it when I was at IDS in Sussex, uh, Institute of Development Studies, and I was doing some firm-level interviews with a major supplier into a large retailer in the UK, a man, um, and this was in the 2000s, and suddenly this man started to talk to me about gender, which kind of shook me. I mean, I I was very interested in issues around gender, but why was this major supplier into a retailer talking about gender? And he said, well, it's quite simply so 70% of our customers are women and if we're not focused on gender issues then we're just not focused on what's happening in relation to our customers and he said what we have is that is a, one of our teams specializes in monitoring gender trends and um, particularly in relation to female employment what type of work they do what kind of hours etc and so a lot of the kind of expansion was based on on really facilitating, particularly supermarkets, but other retailers as well. What we call a one-stop shop. Women are increasingly in paid employment, but they also largely take responsibility for the um, uh, cooking, for care in the home, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So the retailers really focused themselves, and a lot of the expansion was how to facilitate that and how, obviously, to sell more and make a profit out of it. So ready-made garments, um, food, ready-prepared food, white goods, there are a whole range of of things that they produce. The other dimension uh, um, of of the retailers, though, in terms of this retail expansion, particularly in the global north, and I'll come back later to the global staff, um, uh, Europe and North America, is that again to expand was to produce goods that were cheaper and cheaper and cheaper. One of the key ways in which they do this, the big retailers, the big multinationals, and they have enormous control over their suppliers because of their purchasing power from those suppliers, is the types of purchasing practices that they then implement onto the suppliers. So for example, if you're a big retailer, you don't want to hold stock yourself. Because the more stock you hold, the more cost it is to you. What you want to do is you want to have the goods just constantly coming through the value chain. And at the same time with globalization, you're getting these very, very efficient value chains in uh, uh, expanding shipping, air freight, etc., etc. So you want stock constantly coming through. So you want your manufacturers and your suppliers to be producing on literally on a a minute by minute or what they call just in time basis. If there's any change in or shifts in consumer demand, you can then say, oh sorry, nope, we don't want that product, we want that product instead, or we want more of this or we want more of that. So suppliers have to work on a just in time basis to their big buyers, but where the, the where orders go constantly changing. Uh, but also, very importantly, where there's constant downward pressure on the price at which they produce and sell to the retailer. And this is a battle uh, of what's called the purchasing practices. And how many suppliers deal with that pressure is by offsetting the risks and the costs onto their workforce. So you hire a core workforce, which will give you the quality of the product you, you need to supply, and then you have a casual or an informal Uh, or a supplementary or a subcontracted workers who are just bought in on an as-need basis to give you the volume you need to meet your buyer's requirements. And this is a constant struggle. But what you also have got through global value chains is the ability of civil society organisations to track everything that is produced right the way down to the manufacturer in China, or India, or Bangladesh, or Africa, or Latin America. Because as I said earlier, because of this level of governance, the, the, the identity of the ultimate buyer is put on the product at the point of production. So it's very easy therefore, for civil society organizations to identify the end buyer, and then campaign, not necessarily against the supplier, are against the buyer themselves and say you're you're causing you're you're using all this cheap labour so there are a lot of civil society campaigns still are but particularly prominent in the in the 90s i would say and into the 2000s and as a result of some of those civil society campaigns you've got uh, the oxfam behind the brands is one example and could have given many. but as a result of that many of the big (coughs) multinationals now have codes of labour practice and other codes that they particularly relate to, small, to to wage workers so you have to meet minimum standards um, if you're you're supplying um, labor standards if you're supplying some of the big retailers um, and or you you need to um, uh, have other commitments in relation to say smallholders. fair trade is an example um, of a, a, a smallholder initiative that, as well as workers but particularly focused on smallholders to improve their position within the global supply chain. So thinking analytically, um, uh, that's just sort of the overview. So analytically, the big challenge that I have and that the book really addresses is how is this relation between commercial production and social reproduction reconfigured in the context of global value chains? We've got these supply chains out there, what's going on? And there are three different approaches that I've used, that I draw on, and I do do call myself a bit of an eclectic analytically. Uh, I've not, my my primary work, I think as Laura said, is more uh, driven by trying to understand what's going on in reality rather than pure theory, but then drawing on theory to try and explain and better understand that reality. And there are three approaches in particular that I've drawn on. The first is global value chain analysis, which is the work of Gary Gereffi um, and many others, which looks really focused on inter-firm linkages. How do those relationships between firms along the value chain, how have they evolved, what are they like, what are the power relations between firms, how how is value extracted by the big retailers um, at the expense of the suppliers into the value chain? The other approach that I uh, use is Global Production Network, um, uh, analysis, which comes from that's more from economic geography. So the work of Peter Dickens, uh, Neil Coe, Martin Hess, others, many others um, are involved. Henry Young, um, and where they are also looking at value chains, but they look at it much more in terms of the t- the embeddedness of value chains in different societal, territorial, and institutional contexts and how power relations play out in that context. So both, in my, from my view, are informative, but neither um, uh, uh, really address gender issues at all, to be honest. They were both, in my view, fairly gender blind. The other approach from a gender perspective that I draw on is uh, the work of uh, feminist political economy. Many, many, many writers in the nyla Kabir would be uh, an obvious example. Um, uh, and the, uh, Diane Nelson, uh, Ruth and there are many in feminist political economy who have also looked at global production and done some really important work on global production but not really looked along the whole of the value chain. They tend to focus in just at certain segments of the value chain like production, uh, producers, for example. Um, so what I really tried to do was to bring those approaches together Um, to try and and address this analytical challenge of how the production and social reproduction relations were being reconfigured. The one person whose work I did draw on, but he unfortunately only wrote a short paper was by Philip Kelly. um, And he coined the phrase, global reproduction uh, networks. Um, And I built on that, and then drawing on my much wider, you know, I've been doing similar work in a much wider range of, of sectors and countries, really trying to think through what are the implications in terms of this changing relationship, commercial and societal relationship. And I think what that the, the, the reproduction network analysis really brings in is firstly a better understanding of the relationship between, uh, or the gender division of labor between paid and, and, and unpaid, and how that is being reconfigured, particularly as I said earlier with women being fought into the labor force to produce goods that were previously um, undertaken in the home. And, and very importantly, how the social reproduction was being commercialized in different ways. I focus on retail. You could have similar arguments in relation to care work, um, and there, is a, there are a number of very good researchers who do look at care work. It's just not my in my focus. Um, and then the key argument that I uh, put forward is that critical to the whole way in which the dynamics of the gender inequality is absolutely critical to how the commercial dynamics of these value chains operate. And it's they're critical in two ways. Firstly, when women are brought into the labor force, and a lot of feminist political economies very clearly articulated this, women's labor tends to be under, uh, undervalued. Um, you know, you go and buy a, a product and it's got some of that beautiful embroidery it's Christmas coming up so you're going to see some beautiful embroidery in the shops a lot of that is hand stitched by informal workers often in India um, and often at a pittance of a wage, why? because they're unskilled should anyone in this room go and try and do some of that embroidery good luck to you,
2: I certainly couldn't do
1: it so it's an undervaluation of some highly skilled work in some cases. But secondly and critically, by undervaluing the work that's done at the the base of the value chain, at the point of value creation, and undervaluing women's role then in enhancing value, like that embellishment for example, um, that facilitates value capture further along the value chain. So you're gonna go and pay a very high price for that beautifully embellished product, which will be sold to you a very high price by retailer because it's so beautifully done. But the, the actual capture of the value has been at this end by the retailer, not at the other end by the informal home-based worker often. But, so those are the kind of downsides, particularly from a gender perspective. But at the same time, this has created a very large amount of employment for women. And as Nyla Kabir has argued, and, and, and others as well, and this can potentially be empowering. I'll come back to that in a second. But from my perspective, two key issues here. Firstly, that global value chains creates the opportunity for agency. So that women workers, once they come out of the home, get involved in, in paid work, um, have more individual agency. They have an independent income. They have a more collective agency. They, 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 they can now work in, in, in organisations or can collaborate together and can collaborate with other organisations such as international NGOs. And at the end of the day, that enhances their gender <coughs> bargaining and contestation. And I will return to this issue of contestation. So just to kind of wrap it up um, in terms of uh, kind of framework, and this is in the book, just, just trying to put it simply, On the the left-hand side is global production. That is the commercial value chain. I put it up before in a very linear way. Here it's put up um, in a sort of circular way, but it's the same thing. You've got workers going into import sourcing, process manufacturing through to retail. But those, whereas in the kind of traditional economics, you would have quite a division between what goes on commercially and what goes on in household. What I'm arguing is that they're actually increasingly interlinked through value chains. Those big retailers monitor those households like sharks. They know exactly what's going on um, in those households. But also, and this is highly simplified, if you were one of the big, not rather than retailer, if you were one of the, say, a a large confectionery company, you're not only interested in what goes on in households, you've also got to watch out for the communities in which um, your your product is, is produced, say the cocoa growing communities in West Africa. And it's those communities that also produce the workers that go back into the value chain and that, that can become part of the circle. In other words, these, are, these two dimensions, global production and social reproduction, are interlinked. And increasingly, in this kind of value chain world, the big multinationals and the big retailer, retailers are, are, are equally interested in both, <coughs> well, not equally, this is the driving bit because this is where you get the profit, But they need to know about what's going on on the other side in order to get their markets to expand, etc., etc. So is this empowering or not empowering? From a value chain perspective, and there's been long debates, theoretical debates, uh, amongst particularly in feminist political economy, um, between those who argue it is empowering, Kabir being a a very important example. Um, um, Dunaway is is another academic from the US who argues it's very exploitative and disempowering. NGOs argue it's all horrendous. These poor women, they work their asses off. Sorry, excuse my French. They they work themselves. uh, Their fingers raw, um, and they get paid a pittance for it. Very, very exploitative. Businesses will, and they'll provide lots of examples. The companies will come back and say, yeah, but look, they're really benefiting from it. And they will provide examples. So you have these kinds of two opposites to some extent. But when you come in from the value chain perspective and use that commercial lens, There's been a lot of work on issues around downgrading and upgrading. In the same value chain, you will have some producers who, who in order to survive and meet the purchasing practices, will downgrade. They'll go for lower value activities, low price, high volume. Um, They they accept that they're under commercial pressure. They'll just churn women workers over, very exploitative, uh, very poor wages, and, and certainly very little gender equality. But you will also, in the same value chains, and sometimes even in the same factories, have upgrading pressures, where some of the suppliers will be able to produce much higher value goods or engage in higher value activities, uh, a lot more tied in with innovation and lean production. They will get their profit through higher productivity rather than lower wages. Don't forget, it's, it's, it's not the wage that matters, it's the unit labor cost that matters. So if you can, you can raise wages, if you can raise productivity even more, you can still increase your profits. Um, they then need to attract, and retain, more skilled workers. And in order to do that, they'll pay better wages. If those workers are often women, they will often then provide more equitable, uh, uh, so not always, but they're, they're more likely to provide uh, more equitable conditions or at least have the opportunities um, of that. So in other words, from a value chain perspective, really what I argue is that it's, uh, it goes both. It, you, you'll find both um, in the same value chains. Um, given time, I'm not going to go into these. These are some of the examples of case studies that are in the book in quite a lot of detail. One is cocoa in Ghana, um, which I, I highlight as a downgrading challenge. Kenyan flowers, where a lot of contestation in the, in the in 2000s, but you definitely had some improvements. Um, and protests, and a, a lot of change comes about through protests, but I'm not gonna focus on that. I wanna move on to the more contemporary challenges. Um, and there are three things that I briefly want to touch on. And I think the first one is issues around innovation and technology, and that, that really is important for the whole like, economic upgrading story. Because what some people argue is, well, yeah, if you get op- economic upgrading, then actually how you economically upgrade is you introduce more and more capital, capital equipment. Uh, you innovate, uh, etc., And that when you do that, what actually happens is you get the defeminization of the labor force. In other words, women were bought in uh, in large numbers in the 2000s or the 1990s, 2000s, but that you will slowly see them being expelled uh, now, or there'll be a decline at least in the level of female employment. Um, very importantly, that does vary across sector. The kind of data that you get does vary, and particularly between manufacturer and agri-food, much more difficult to to um, innovate and, and use modern high-level high technology in agri-food than it is in manufactured goods. But, and I. Just from a value chain perspective, I would think we need to also be a bit careful in taking data that has been acquired through traditional um, uh, st- uh, statistical uh, techniques, particularly based largely on labour force data, and apply it to a value chain, and therefore assume that you're getting a, sh- a shift in the value chain. So if, I, I haven't got time to go into the detail, but if you think of a factory that used to be a car factory that had all of its own cleaners and its own uh, catering service, etc. It now outsources the cleaning um, and it outsources the, 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 um, uh, the catering. Those two previously would have been counted as part of the, part of the car factory.
2: Now they're not
1: because they're on separately by a catering firm and by a cleaning firm. So they disappear. So, you, But you haven't necessarily had any decline in the number of workers. What you've had is a change in the type of work and who outtake, undertakes that work. And just very quickly, another example that's often given is Bangladesh garments. Because Bangladesh garments used to be around 80% female and is now roughly around 60 65% female. Um, absolutely true. There's been a a relative decline as they've shifted from woven to knit. but It used to be 80% of 1 million workers. It's now 60% of nearly 4 million workers. So the absolute number of women working in Bangladesh garments has gone up, even though the relative number has declined. So I think we just have to be a little bit careful um, of the stats. But also very importantly, and that goes back to the example I just gave, What we have seen um, in uh, value chains is, with the expansion of value chains, is a massive growth in the role of services, particularly linked to trade. Um, So just uh, to give you uh, OECD number, uh, the um, services in trade uh, or trade linked services rose from 23% in 2008 to 45% in 2013, and that's not just the kind of example I gave. There are many, many other services that, that, if you're if you've fragmented production across a whole range of countries and suppliers, you then have to bring in to help um, coordinate and, and manage that, those relationships. And women are uh, in services over half of service employment is female, and the types of jobs that are needed are often. Um, kind of soft jobs, as they call them. I, I don't call them soft, but others do. So I think, again, we have to be a bit careful in that there might be a, a decline in the narrow sense of the sector, but you also have to look at the broader value chain and what else is going on elsewhere to fully assess what the gender implications are. Very difficult, because we don't have necessarily have the data. I should add
2: Walmart
1: has the data for its own value chain, because they monitor it all, just that private data. Um, so data does exist, it's just we don't have access to it. The next um, big issue that clearly impacted value chains is COVID, um, and that was quite interesting. I was involved in, in, in quite a bit of research around value chains in COVID, um, and just, again, just highlighting a few things. The first is it really varied by value chain. The impacts really varied big time by value chain. In garments it was really a horror story initially, Um, uh, uh, roughly around 70% of global um, uh, garment production is undertaken by women, it varies between countries. Um, But um, what some of the big buyers, or many of the big buyers, when all the shops (coughs) are closed they just suspended orders, and some even suspended, Mark Anna has done some excellent work from Penn State University on this. They didn't just suspend orders, they suspended orders that were already in the process of delivering. So a good had been, the guns had been produced; they were already in shipment, and then they canceled the order. So it was a disaster, there was a big campaign, civil of society campaign over that, and some of that um, cutting and running was ameliorated. but. But even without that, uh, garment workers really suffered as a result of COVID. Um, and many of the migrant workers in India, for example, Bangladesh, they were forced back to the villages, they, they lost pay, etc., <coughs> etc. Et Agri-food was a much more complex story um, because food remained, in virtually every country, remained um, a, a necessary product. People still had to eat to live despite COVID. Um, so it, it was much less adversely affected, but it, it did have um, implications because most food producers still had, now had to meet restrictions. So for example, you had to kept spacing between workers or you, you, couldn't, you, you, you couldn't bus workers in in the same way as you used to because you couldn't put them all together. So there were a lot of complications. Um, And certainly, it did affect workers um, in in food. And also, very importantly, in many of the food shops and supermarkets, they remained open. The majority of employment in most countries, few exceptions, but most countries, in the global north and global south, of of retail service industry, the, the majority is female. And of course, then they were highly exposed to to COVID and the risks that came with that. Um, and for those that lost their jobs, sudden loss of income and loss of pay, for those that didn't lose their job, COVID, particularly for women, the problem of juggling care work when the children were often out of school now, but you were still having to go to work, at the risk of you bringing COVID back into your household, etc. So, so quite, quite problematic issues. Transport uh, logistics was also interesting. Logistics is primarily male. From all everything that I've seen, um, it's primarily male. Um, it, it was heavily disrupted, but you also got some very weird things like Kenya Airways, who who didn't used to, who couldn't now fly any passengers, converted many of their passenger planes to um, carrying. Uh, fresh produce. You, if you go on a passenger plane, often underneath you, there will be in the hold, there will be a lot of fresh produce and, and other and goods that are being uh, air freighted. Um, what they did was to bring it up into the seats so that they had rechanged the pallet so the pallet would fit in the seats and that each seat had a pallet rather than it being, under, well, as well as it being underneath. So there were some very interesting things that went on. Uh, Many, um, a lot of workers were affected by it, but as I said, that was primarily male, and that's interesting why, why male. So just in terms of sort of the gender impacts um, of COVID, it, what I think COVID really did was highlight some of the fault lines in global value chains that I was identifying earlier. I mean, one of the most obvious was that cutting and running, the purchasing practices. Here we go again, the buyer purchasing practices The essence of it is they control everything that goes on, but they offset all the risks down to suppliers and they offset down to workers. COVID hit, what do we do? We can't run. Um, As I've said, a lot of variations across sectors and and also across countries, but it was particularly temporary, casual, informal workers who were the worst affected. They didn't have legal contracts. They were the most likely to be uh, laid off first the majority of those workers are female in, in virtually every country, including the UK. The second also, and um, this was a, what a lot of the research we were being asked to look at, was issues around data and, and how do we monitor what the gender impacts are, out of sight and out of mind is what we call them. Um, companies, um, do on the whole, do not, if they do, they do collect gender data, I should be very careful how I say this, they don't tend to, to. They certainly don't publish it, and they often don't <coughs> analyse it unless it's in their interest to, for commercial reasons. So uh, there is a lot of gender data out there in uh, in global value chains, but it wasn't being monitored, and a lot of the, the the decisions that were being made with no consideration what the gender impacts were. But certainly, what COVID did um, was to um, re- to. I, I would argue, to set back a lot of the gains that had been made by women workers in many countries. Um, uh, uh, and, well, we can, there was a whole talk about buying, um, building back better. And I'm really not sure that we did build back better. But what I should also say, of course, COVID was almost immediately followed by a whole series of other global shifts and geopolitical tensions that are going on. I'm not going to go into all those big geopolitical tensions. I'm sure you're very familiar with, the US-China tensions being, the most, I mean, from a value chain perspective, the most relevant because a lot of that is tensions over how uh, outsourcing went from North America to China. And China has now become an expert in the production of goods previously produced in North America. So, of course, what Donald Trump argued for was reshoring, bring the jobs back home, bring the production back home. And to some extent, that has begun to happen. But from a gender perspective, from a worker perspective, what's been brought home has been highly, highly uh, advanced technological investment with very few jobs associated with it. So although Trump has uh, that policy, that strategy, has had some impact in terms of reshoring, it hasn't had that much effect in terms of job creation. And I think it's unlikely to as well. Nearshoring is another one. How do you cut the cost? Because COVID was so disruptive of value chains, um, and getting goods from one end of the world to the other end of the world is very expensive. So a lot of, uh, of big multinationals and retailers move much more towards nearshoring. Source as, as much as you can, as near as you can. So if there's a disruption, you'll be less disrupted. So that shifts production around a bit. And then of course, the, the latest one is friend-shoring, only, only source from your friends, not from your potential adversaries. Um, I, I'm not gonna go into that. Uh, but that is there is a sort of reconfiguration going on. In terms of my own research, where we've really been focused on the last few, few years, is what is South-South Trade and the rise of South-South Trade, what we call the regionalization of value chains. Um, and um, South-South trade has really increased. Uh, if you, just to give you a bit of data, I have got, it's not up there, but um, this is according to UNCTAD. Um, the, uh, in 2018, there had been a shift. Trade between countries in the global south, and that includes China. I mean, there is a, you know, what is the global south? But including China, went up from 39% to 57%. 2000, and I can't remember, sorry, I haven't got it down exact date, but there's been a significant increase so that now the majority of trade, of exports from the global south go to other countries within the global south. Um, but also what we've got um, is um, uh, regionalization of value chains. So within Latin America, within Asia, and within Africa, increasingly with growth in consumption, growth in jobs, urbanization. You're getting rising middle classes in those regions. You're getting companies within those regions becoming the lead firm. Um, so the lead firm are increased, firms are increasingly not American and European. They are Asian, African, or Latin America. And I've been involved in a big research project in, in Africa, which people look more at Asia and Latin America in terms of those trends, but that trend is also happening um, in Africa. I've got just two examples up there. ShopRite is a major supermarket, South African supermarket. It operates in 14 countries across um, Sub-Saharan Africa. Fashini is a, is a South African uh, re- uh, garment retailer, and um, also operates in I can't remember, the exact number of, of, of companies. But it's also an international uh, brand, so they also, Vaseline uh, own um, Whistles, Hobbs, um, and one, two others in the UK. So, so the kind of that idea that it's all companies in Europe and North America <coughs> controlling what goes on in global south. There's shifts taking place here. Um, and those shifts are multiple, um, and, they, and they're taking place within Africa as well as in Asia and Latin America. What our research also looked at was this, uh, so if that happens, if you do get the regionalization and domestic value chains in Africa, Asia and Latin America, do, do labour standards matter in those value chains? So our research was looking at that in Africa, and we found mixed outcomes. <coughs> That's going to be my epitaph, isn't it? Mixed outcomes. So certainly in both uh, Africa, um, we found that RITA, which is, uh, is is the Wine and Agricultural Ethical Trade Association in South Africa. They use the equivalent of the Ethical Trade Initiative in the UK, very similar. Fair Trade, talks about Fair Trade. Then. That is Fair Trade Africa. That's not Fair Trade here. And one of their biggest uh, goals is the expansion of Fair Trade certified products within Africa, Asia, and Latin America, i.e., within the global south. But also what we found is that as value chains have become more explicit within African countries, so governments, which previously tended to say, this is nothing to do with us, this is what the European and the North Americans are up to, have also become more engaged in issues around value chains. So an example of that is in Kenya, a little-known standard introduced in 2019, so uh, just as COVID was hitting just after, just before. Um, is basically KS 1758, it's a horticulture and floriculture standard, which is a straight, basically it's a synthesis of all the private standards that operate in the global value chains, and they've just taken them and turned them into national law to apply for both export value chains and domestic value chains. It doesn't matter. And right the way through the value chain. Gender implications of that, we're not sure. I mean, that we need to, to wait and see. Uh, what we found in the case studies we've done, that was in Kenya, South Africa, Escuartini um, and Lesotho, is we found mixed outcomes. Um, and it's not straightforward. So for example, um, Eswatini is an example uh, when COVID hit, whilst the big multinational brands were cutting and running, the South African retailers didn't cut and run from their, their suppliers in South and Eswadeen. They had a much closer relationship to them. And so the impacts on workers were not as adverse, and of course, the majority of those workers, again, are female. Um, uh, in terms of the kind of the local social standards, the public governance, I've done, been doing a lot of work on, on smallholder production in Kenya, um, and what we're seeing potentially are uh, opportunities for women at smallholder level, because to be certified the standards, and it's now law that you are going to have to do that. You have to be organised in small producer organisations, cooperatives, etc. And what our research Indicates is that's a lot better gender outcomes. So it's still very much work in process, in progress. Difficult to know the exact. I um, oh, don't want to go to the last slide for some reason. I uh, don't know why. OK. Uh, so there is a final slide. So just I'll give you a two without going to it. So just a few concluding remarks. Well, the first is, is this disempowering um, for women? Um, I would have, we we need a a more nuanced approach Um, because you can find examples which are good or bad, for me isn't the answer. What we need to understand is who benefits, who loses, and that then gives you who, how to protect those that that lose, I would say from the weakest to the strongest. Focus on the weakest and then the, the, the stronger workers will de facto be looked after. The second issue I think that's absolutely critical and COVID has really highlighted is firstly, as I argued earlier, is that, that um, global value chains are built on systemic gender inequality. That's been critical for the sort of value capture by the big ret- retailers and brands. And, and what COVID really has done is to highlight that that is not gone away and is unlikely to go away. And particularly with these kinds of geopolitical shifts going on at the moment, a lot of retailers are really um, clamping down on their suppliers in terms of cost and price. But the other side of the same is that what we also see, and I haven't had time to go into it, uh, but we are also seeing with the shifts that are going on um, is an increase in public regulation of value chains. I gave the example from Kenya. But... I know the UK has left the European Union, but the European Union is in the process of introducing human rights and environment due diligence legislation, um, I can give you the details later if you want, um, across a range of, of dimensions, but one of them is on corporate responsibility, um, sorry, corporate sustainability due diligence, which will come in in 2026. Multinationals selling in the EU uh, or operating in the EU, and that will apply not only to their own operations but across their whole supply chain, irrelevant of where they source. Now that's going to be a big ask for those multinationals. Even though the UK is outside the EU, de facto, that those companies will be operating in the UK, or the vast majority will. So they'll be following EU legislation irrelevant of whether they be the UK followers or not. Um, and then the other big shift, um, or the other big issue, sorry, and that, that's such a shame, I don't know why it's frozen, because I've got a nice picture of it. But anyway, the other big, my argument, is that gender equality never came about because governments or, or companies just gave it to us. Oh, it's, it's frozen a bit. Um, but I'll, I'll just finish off here. Um, the, um, it's always come about through contestation. I'm from the University of Manchester, um, women's rights in the UK, result in the result of the Self-Reject movement, um, and brilliant, thank you. No, there it is, it. Um, so, the so Self-Reject movement, uh, it, equally a lot of the gains that we're getting have only come about, uh, that women have ever got, have come about through contestation. So the society's played a key role. If you're following the news at the moment, Bangladesh, in Bangladesh, there's a major uprising going on by garment workers, primarily led by women garment workers, um, because arguing for higher wages. That the minimum legal minimum wage should be much higher if you're going to have a living wage. They haven't had any increase in wages in Bangladesh for over five, ye- five years, um, or about five years, even though the cost of living has gone up. So contest, and, and some of the multinational brands are supporting them. But the problem, and, and arguing they should have an increase in the living wage, the problem is they're not committing to increasing the prices they pay to the suppliers who supply those garments. Purchasing practices hits again. So ultimately this is contestation continues to be um, But I'll finish there because I think it still it still opens up the value chains provide this kind of channel for these decisions.
3: So a lot to think about there, and thank you very much to Stephanie Barrientos for that real tour de force, compressing a 250, 300 page book into a, a few PowerPoint slides and a really interesting presentation. So I want to start with just my my sense of how how this uh, comes together. What I really liked about this book was the whole idea of using a gender lens to examine how global value chains reconfigure the boundaries between commercial production and social reproduction. And we've talked in DB 400 a lot about how the economic and the social come together in various different ways in the the coming together of states and markets and the shaping of development processes. So the idea of seeing women's paid work and unpaid work, the profit motive and the motives of care and well-being, production and social reproduction, there's a kind of planish sense there that we're looking at how the economic and the social interface through the process of global value chains and how that reshapes economic directions. And there was an interesting engagement, I thought, between feminist economics and conventional economics to try to tease some of these things out. I also very much appreciated her, her critique of what's been called the benign escalator view of global value chains, that you just get on the chain at the bottom and it will pull you up to prosperity within the global economy. And I thought it was very useful to have this idea that work at the bottom of the chain doesn't necessarily lead to better paying conditions, that these are things that have to be fought for. And the third thing that I thought was really useful was the whole idea that not only is it the case that um, decent work outcomes are not inevitable, but gender equitable outcomes are also not inevitable. But they can be opened up by particular patterns of policy intervention and contestation, either individually or collect- collectively or in, in uh, concert with uh, a number of other organizations, civil society organizations, public governments, etc. And in understanding the way that upgrading and downgrading come together and trying to understand how the dynamics of the chain help us to work out how to improve the way that chains function, rather than just to get trapped in the machinery and dragged down in the race to the bottom. So all of those, I thought, were really, really useful ways for looking at global value chains in a, a deeper and more dynamic way to try to get a sense of what their wider gender implications were. However, I think that there are a number of issues that don't that we need to sink our teeth into a little bit more, starting with the whole idea of embedded tensions, which is discussed in the book. The idea that there are tensions between global value chains as something that exploits women's cheap labor, and global value chains as a source of opportunity for women that could lead to jobs, income, economic autonomy. The whole idea of increasing women's labor force participation as liberating, enabling, empowerment has really been challenged, and this is mentioned in the book, really been challenged by, you know, decades ago, by Guy Standing's work on informalization and feminization. The idea that globalization has created a dynamic that creates more women's jobs, but more informal, downgraded jobs in the process. So this idea of um, supermarkets is expanding into Africa. We have a sense that um, that that access to food, clothes, household goods in the context of low-income countries is somehow something that provides you no know, convenience or makes life better off for women. But this is not being viewed clearly in the context of the entire dynamics of the chain. Who produces, who consumes these things? And the reality is in developing countries, it is time poor, income poor women in low income countries, often who are producing at the bottom of global value chains. So that women in developed countries or middle class women in developing countries can buy from these supermarkets, can buy these convenience goods for women. So there's a a kind of a situation in which low-paid women produce low-value convenience household goods, which they export, so that the branded version of those things can be imported back again at a higher cost. There's a kind of unequal exchange between the labor being carried out at the bottom of the chain and the consumer goods being uh, consumed at at the other end of the chain, which are often imported and often too expensive for the workers themselves, the female workers themselves, to afford. So I think there's a question here of how do we ensure that the boundaries between women's paid and unpaid work, between production and reproductive work, are shifted in a positive direction when the producers often are unable to buy the goods that are being produced, and when household incomes are often depressed rather than increased by working bottom value chains. The second issue that I want to raise that connects with a a core theme in the book is the whole idea of gender articulations. How do the linkages between production and and social reproduction, between paid and unpaid work, the dynamics of upgrading and downgrading, how do these come together in ways that either improve or fail to improve uh, women's opportunities and uh, their, their potential for empowerment. It's argued in the book that is a central issue is the undervaluing of women's skills in the sphere of social reproduction, household work, cooking, sewing, that kind of thing, leads to the underpaying of women when they enter the labor force in global value chains. Now, if we look at the actual historical process through which women's women became a cheap labor force in global value chains we actually see a situation in which it has much less to do with women's undervalued skills and a great deal more to do with the repealing of labor regulations that might have protected those women from being undervalued and paid low, insecure wages. So it's not so much that societal norms are key to undervaluing women's uh, work, but more about The use of liberalization, structural adjustment to repeal the regulatory uh, frameworks for labor that used to protect workers back in the era of ISI when they were working in local factories led to deindustrialization, and now has brought in the global value chains where regulation is happening, happening at the level of the lead firm. And you have a situation where women are carrying out both female types of jobs, um, food production, uh, garment production, but but also the production of electronics. And their undervalued female labor in all of those situations. So it's not so much whether this is women's work. It is the dynamics of the chain that tends to undervalue women's work when there is nothing to protect those women. And I mentioned structural adjustment and the deindustrialization, the undermining of local industry, the repealing of labor regulations, the creation of special economic zones, which in fact remove uh, labor protections as part of the deal of these special economic zones, remove minimum wage legislation, etc. And you have a situation in which work is fragmented not by women moving between paid and unpaid work, but actually by the dynamics of the chain. And uh, Stephanie Barrientos mentioned the whole dynamic of price, speed, and quality. So within the value chain, all of the firms involved have to produce at a particular quality, at a very rapid speed, meeting a particular price point, which is often set so close to the actual cost of production that it's very difficult to make any money out of it. I'm at five minutes? Okay. So you, It's really important to think about the ways in which those dynamics of trying to meet the price points that are set so tightly at the speed and the quality required actually lead to a continuous layering of of outsourcing, using labor contractors to bring in cheaper labor that is kept in a different site. Um, There's a, a, a nice phrase from a an article on global value chains in in houseware by um, Orlando Grootman. who says, offsite, out of mind. Those who do the auditing in global value chains, they go to the factory, they audit what's going on there. If you outsource to labor contractors and have workers in another place, or you outsource to informal (laughs) firms elsewhere, nobody looks at those. Nobody knows what's going on in those lower tiers that are well under the radar of various types of codes and standards. And in fact, Stephanie Barrientos in her own work has declared that labor contracting is the Achilles' heel of codes and standards because they carry out forms of informal, downgraded um, management of labor that codes and standards can't catch. So uh, uh, just one or two other things just to to mention. The issue of of the ways in which upgrading and downgrading come together. So upgrading, as was mentioned, has to do with firms moving into better processes or higher value products or even into higher value chains. But the way that upgrading, uh, sorry, that's economic upgrading, but also social upgrading, which is about improving the the conditions of work, the pay, the, the capacity to organize, but often. Up, economic upgrading happens without social upgrading and it's more often women that are left behind as the flexible labor force as firms upgrade, say from uh, apparel cutting and trimming to textile production, etc., moving up the chain with higher value types of uh, activities but leaving women in the flexible side of the, the packing, the seasonal labor, the filling in when you have a big order side of things. So upgrading, economic upgrading, can take place, but women are often on the side where they get downgraded. And in fact, um, Stephanie mentioned the ways in which upgrading often pushes women out of the value chain as you have higher capital, higher skilled types of activities, maybe which require higher levels of education that women don't have. But it also happens at the other end of the value chain. As unemployment increases, even in things like garments that are inhabited, are, are dominated by women, men start taking over those jobs if they're the best jobs around. So women get squeezed out whenever these jobs begin to become good jobs. Okay, just one um, one final thing. I think is really about the whole issue of governance and contestation. The the whole idea of um, social of of public governance, private governance, and uh, social governance trying to improve the way that firms operate. Looking at the way that social and private governance work, the the way that uh, firm regulations, certification, uh, codes and standards work, often try to tidy up and improve the reputation of the value chain, there's a certain type of, a certain level of ethical washing that often goes on. So often in the, the context of, of uh, value chains in which women work, improving, say, um, gender rights or having training on social reproductive health, but not improving the wage, or not ensuring a living wage, or not improving the ability of women to organize in ways that can create frameworks of decent decent work. So, the whole idea that um, attending to gender necessarily improves a lot of women, I think we have to chip away at that a bit more, scratch the surface and say, in what way are they attending to gender? Are they attending to the kind of things that make it look like they're caring about women, Um, thinking about whether women are being abused by their employers or whether they have Child care or improved uh, assistance with reproductive rights? Or are they actually ensuring that women have decent work that is ensured that they have the right to organize, that they have uh, ensured uh, protection against uh, uh, inappropriate overtime and, and decent, um, decent pay? So, the process of making value chains really attend to improving the lot of women, I think, is about more than creating jobs, because if there are lots of really terrible jobs, it's not necessarily something that makes women better off. And it's about more than economic upgrading, because if women are constantly pushed into the informal dimensions of the chain, again, it doesn't help women very much. And it's about more than bringing in public governance and codes and standards, because if The the public governance is states that are enthralled to the value chains because they need the exports and they need the the improvements in their GDP. And the World Bank and multilateral organizations that are focused on growth and improving GDP and enhancing market operations, not on ensuring decent work and adequate labor regulation, then the outcome is is a problem. So I think that we we want to be looking at these processes more in the round. And I think Stephanie has done a great job in creating a framework for us to think about these things, to look at the real complexities under the surface, and to really dig into the question of global value chains and gender and decent work in a way that we do something more than scratch the surface. Thank you.
0: both for these wonderful uh, comments and wonderful things to think about. Um, do we have any, I'm going to take a couple of questions and then if you want to respond to also some of the comments. Um, do you prefer if I can take maybe three at a time, Stephanie? Yeah, yeah. So I think there's one over here and then a chance Uh, Thank you so much for your talk. Honestly, it was very insightful. Uh, I was wondering, uh, since a lot of the focus was on uh, women as employees in the labor force, uh, I'd like to ask about women as employers, or women-owned and led businesses, and whether or not efforts to integrate them into the value chain, hence increasing their sizes and growth um, would improve the decent work or the good Work conditions for women, because empirical evidence has always shown that women employ women. They provide better uh, conditions for them. They live in the workforce and so on. They provide transportation, all of these things that usually maybe in a lot of other places they wouldn't provide. So, should there be more focus as well on how to ensure women-owned and businesses are integrated and expanding within the value chain? Thank you. Okay, thank you, and the gentleman down here. Um,
4: so, uh, thank you for the. Uh, Okay. So um, I was just wondering, um, like the feminization of labor in the Global South, does it lead to uh, does it really lead to freedom of association? Do the local go- do the governments in the Global South allow that to happen? Does this lay the ground for like uh, broader international women's movement? And I was also thinking about regarding the reassuring uh, or like sometimes called de-risking. Policy towards China. What does it mean for women in China? For those women worked or have been working in the garment industry. Uh, What does it mean for those um, uh, for women in, for example, Southeast Asia or Mexico who may start working in similar industries that have moved to those countries? Um, And also, um, similarly, what does the EU legislation do? Um, You know, how does it affect women working? China, and those industries, does it have impact on oh, uh, that?
0: Okay, can you put, pass it back to the lazy?
3: Thanks for the talk. Um, I'm curious, uh, you talked about how the global value chain um, makes women have more agency and makes them
1: more productive,
3: but I was wondering if this ever came up
0: in your research. Um,
3: in terms of the micro level, um, to what extent did these women um, have more uh, decision-making power or bargaining power in the household? And yeah, to what extent was that? Did that come up?
1: Okay, thank you. Uh, great questions. Thanks, and also just thanks for some great comments. Um, okay, because I, I think that yeah, I mean, all things that I think are important issues. So which we can also discuss. Um, so just on the specific... did you want me to respond at all to Kate or Yeah, if you, if uh, there are things that you want to respond yeah, to I'll probably try and <laughs> talk about that a little bit. I'll, I'll start with the questions though and then just see. Um the the first thing I'll put in is uh, um, as uh, uh, women owned businesses, yes there is stuff going on on that. Um, uh, yeah, the... Uh, yeah, I got into trouble. I was asked by an organisation, I'm not sure I should name the organisation, to do a report on women and gender um, in value chains. Um, and it was uh, an international organisation, which, it isn't the World Bank, but it's not far off the World Bank. And I got into a lot of trouble because I didn't talk about, I was talking about workers and worker rights and things like that. And they said, well, what we really wanted was to know about women-owned businesses, so... I uh, I stuck to my guns, I think I put a couple of paragraphs in, but I said, look, there's vast majority, the, if you want to look in terms of numbers and development, it's women who are wage workers who are the, the vast majority women-owned businesses. Well. But there are some actually really interesting examples. Um, uh, Walmart, ironically, uh, had a strategy, I think it's still that they have to source X amount of the type of sourcing it has to be for women-owned business. Um, that was it was a bit of an anomaly because Walmart's not famous for promoting gender, but it, on certain issues, it um, was good. Um, there are definite examples. The, um, I've done quite a bit of work over the years uh, on and off um, in Bangladesh garments, and I can't remember their name now. Trying to, that's just lit my mind. But um, one of there was a garment uh, factory owner, a woman. Don't forget, a lot of it is passed through the family. Um, so a lot of it is the factories. Family and, and, and her father had passed on, and she she became the owner of the factory. Um, and the vast majority of workers, supervisors, and managers in the factory were women. Um, so all this argument that I kept hearing in Bangladesh about oh, women can't be supervisors, they don't have enough authority, they can't manage, they don't have, all of that myth was clearly and very successful. She became very only unfortunately a very short period of time the head of the BGMEA which is the Bangladesh Exporters and mm-hmm. Manufacturers Association and um, 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 has been very successful so so yeah there are examples uh, on the whole they tend to they, I, I wouldn't say that I haven't done enough research specifically on the business there are a lot of people in the business schools who've done that, who that do that um, but there are definitely some interesting issues there. Um, in relation to um, the feminization of... Well, there were three questions that you asked, actually, uh, and I think some of what you asked relates back to, to Kate's kind of points, and I think uh, does it lead to more freedom of association? And, and that really goes back to... I mean, I do agree with Kate that that's the context in which global value chains, and I didn't go to the talk... I think I put it, in the, I mean it's in the book, but it's more dealt with as context. Global value chains arose as a result of deregulation of trade, in particular trade, finance and labour markets. Not deregulation of the movement of people, that's the only bit that didn't get deregulated um, in most countries. Um, and there is no doubt that the whole outsourcing shift that took place, that was facilitated by that, at all levels, um, the trade, the finance, and, the, and, and I think you have to take the three together, um, and the outsourcing was to get cheap labor, and the cheapest labor was female labor, and the reason, one of the main reasons it was so, so cheap is because women hadn't traditionally, and this is where I would take issue a little bit, under import substitution industrialization, and more of my work was in Latin America, on that early on. Um, under ISI, uh, it, these were male jobs. It was protected. There were much stronger unionization, but these were primarily seen as male jobs, earning a, a family wage. Um, and of course, so, and I didn't go into that in the book because a lot has been written on it in relation to structural adjustment programs, etc. So another dimension of women being brought in um, in those countries was to undermine those male the, the dominance of male organised jobs. But the problem was those trade unions, and it's still an issue, tend to not organise women workers. And they don't organise them, particularly if they're informal or casual, because um, they just just they just so has it helped the, the organisation of women? On the whole no. But you also have some really good examples of women organizing themselves. Um, the big obvious one is, say, were the Southern <coughs> Women's Association in India, um, which, is, uh, and which has, interestingly, has long had a very strong value chain lens to its work, um, both domestically but also in terms of the exports. And that is specifically the organization of women in the informal economy in India. Um, So there are examples. The Bangladesh strikes going on at the moment, I mean, I'm only really picking it up through the press, so you'll have as much information as I do, but there are a lot of women in those strikes. So those strikes would not be going on if it weren't for women, but there is an issue that women are on the hold, with some very strong exceptions. There are some organisations in Bangladesh that have a very strong gender lens, but a lot of more traditional unions don't tend to organised women, so it's it's a mixed issue there I, I think so a lot of the civil society campaigns, so I mentioned Oxfam Christian Aid, War on Want there are many of them often they, um, Action Aid there are many of them, often they've had a gender focus because they've focused in on the more exploitative conditions and those tend to be more, <coughs> more likely to be Um in terms of the EU legislation we don't know yet um, the, the it's still early stages. So the CSDD, the Corporate Sustainability Due Diligence, which is basically human rights and environment. All companies are going to have to show due diligence on that, not only in their own operations, but across the supply chain. It comes out of the UN guiding principles on on business and human rights. There's, There's three elements of that. One is that states have a, duty to protect human rights. The second is that private sector companies have a duty to respect human rights. Now, if you leave it to states and companies, um, I I would say, hmm, not sure how far we're going to get on this one, but it's a very top-down. It started with the UN, and now it's the EU's turning it into legislation. The third is remedy, and remedy um, is that uh, civil society? Organized law. They're still working out the detail, but that if you are subject subject to abuse, <coughs> some kind of human rights abuse, you you can make a complaint. If it once it becomes law, which will be in two thousand and six, they're working on the directive at the moment. So they've passed the basic principle of it, now they're working on the directive, and that will come into effect in two thousand and six. It's still very very early days. But the, the issue remedy, which means technically, at least, on paper, um, trade unions, NGOs, civil society organizations, individual workers will be able to, to um, make complaints. I should add to that that if you are a company at the moment, at the moment, um, and this has a very, very strong gender dimension, um, and I start to ask you about what do you think of Lee Day? which. I don't know if anyone in this room knows of lead a it's a firm of solicitors um, uh, which has been taking out pro bono cases against you uh, in the uk against uk um, companies for um, abuses that have been taking place in their supply chains in africa mainly. that those happen to be the cases they've done them Tea. they've got the case going through at the moment with Del Monte in relation to pineapples um, and they've done it on horticulture as well. They also did Uber and Shell in the Niger Delta. They've also, and big in the Niger Delta. Very big. And they do it pro bono. So the, the complainants don't have to have any money. If they win the case, they get a proportion of the winnings. That's that's the payoff. But if you lose it, you don't have to pay a penny. If i if Ask the company about it, they go white because they're really scared of me day. Now, when that legislation comes in to the EU, of course, that's an issue. But many more firms of solicitors will be in a position to take those kinds of cases. So it's a long way to go. I think it would be another 10 years. And, and I should have added so, all of those cases, the ones I mentioned, uh, not the Nigel Delta, but the other ones uh, are based on sex discrimination and sexual harassment. Um, so all of them have a very strong gender element to them. Um, and then just the final one, agency. Very difficult. Um, uh, I, I don't work at household level. There, are some, um, that my research, there is some brilliant research done, particularly in feminist political economy, um, that is done at the household level and a lot of discussion about bargaining. Whether having an independent... And this goes, again, back to Kate's points. I mean, there is a lot of debate about whether paid work is empowering or disempowering, and particularly at household level. And, and uh, I, uh, I mean, interesting, really interesting debates. I tend to kind of go with the Sen's view, which I think Kavir also, Naila Kavir also has, has generally kind of gone in that argument, that if you've got an independent income, it gives you more bargaining position within the household. I think I've seen very kind of mixed at household levels, but I've not done systematic research at household levels, so I wouldn't really want to comment. Do you want to respond to something? Yes, if I could just come in
3: on the first one and the last one. So on the, the first one about the women's businesses, it's important to remember that if you incorporate a woman's business into a value chain, they are then subject to the same pressures of cost, speed, and quality, that is, can you produce this thing at the speed we want it, at the quality we want it, at the very tight price point we want it? And those pressures will be um, asserted on these female businesses as well. And if large suppliers are struggling with those kinds of pressures, you can imagine what small female businesses are going to to experience. And then the second thing about uh, the idea of whether being involved, having work in a value chain gives women agency. I think it's important, again, to put things in the wider context. When women's work is replacing the male breadwinner, that means that a woman's income working in a value chain is not on top of the men's incomes in the household. It becomes the income in the household. So a lower, weaker, un- more unstable income becomes the household income. and being in a situation in which you earn less and are the only one earning in the household or you know, just small, informal, unstable income is not a position of empowerment. It means that you are making decisions about not having enough to make your household work. And often in those situations, rather in empowering women, you have rising levels of domestic violence or struggles within the household about how money will be allocated. It's not an enviable position for many of these women who are at the the real bottom of the value chain.
0: Okay, so we have three questions sort of in a row at the back. Um, so let's let's do gentlemen first, and then the two ladies.
2: Um, thank you for the presentation. Uh, my question, I'm trying to think how to articulate it. You spoke of the value capture and intentional devaluation or undervaluation of women's labor. Um, when thinking about to what extent would you assess this as you know, essential into the system of, of capital accumulation, the intentional undervaluation uh, of, of women's labor? And uh, to what extent would addressing that disrupt whole, this whole system of capital accumulation? Um, often, the, the last point you mentioned of addressing that, you know, often I think where that, you know, that value can be extracted would be higher up to the, to the retailers. But the retailers often try to push this off to be a debate between the workers and maybe the factory owners. And when there's actual questions of maybe capturing Walmart's super profits, it's why the U.S. government wants to capture those profits and not actually uh, value the, the the labor that's being, you know, produced. Um, so how would how would we go about addressing this? Guys, okay, so try to keep your questions short so we can
1: have a lot of time. Yeah. So you touched a bit upon the Mm -hmm. idea of new legislations
4: to govern worker and labor force between the North and the different
3: value chains. In the rise of the South-Touth global value chains,
1: do you see this kind of governance For women to be part of those part of uh, manufacturing processes.
0: And the lady next to you in, in the lovely white jacket. Hi, um, I wanted to ask about Bangladesh and fast fashion factories and how, um, since the Rana Plaza collapsed, there's been a lot of progress in fire safety and calls coming in, but there's been less progress with um, gender based violence in the factories, such as the mm-hmm. sexual assault. How can we get over the deadlock between the Bangladeshi states to implement frameworks um, and their kind of relationship with the retailers in the global north? Implementing these frameworks for yeah, gender based violence to be addressed as much as Thank you. I'm hoping we'll have one more round.
1: Um, that first question on um, <laughs> capital accumulation—I mean, that's just such a critical uh, question. Um, I haven't got a quick answer to it. It's actually something I'm working on right now um, because it's not my area of expertise. It's not on finance, um, but um, you know, I think to understand what—I mean—and I talk a lot about purchasing practices. I've done work on that for a long, long time, and you look at the retailers and the way they put pressure, but. Of course, what you also have to ask is why and what part of it's tied up. It depends a little bit on the company, but a, a lot of it's also tied up with who are, the, who are the shareholders, who are the owners of these companies, of these retailers. At the end of the day, they've got to produce in terms of dividends, they've got to produce in terms of market share. They, they're The top CEOs, etc. are on enormous pay, payments. So long as they can deliver, they're dead in the water if they can't. So it's very tied into the kind of financialization um, of global capitalism, effectively, and that was really tied up with what happened in the 80s as well, with structural adjustment um, and liberalization kind of enabled that financialization. And I, I, from my perspective, and I, I would accuse myself of that very much as well, value chain analysis doesn't look at that dimension sufficiently. Some do. There are some people. I think it's really a critical thing, a, a dimension. It's not something I have expertise in, but it is something I'm looking at right now. So I wouldn't want to give you any quick and easy answer, but you raised it. It's key. And, and particularly now, in, with all this sort of restructuring that's going on, what's the implications of that for the financial system? I mean, I would leave others to do it, but I'd be very interested in trying to understand that interaction between industry value chain, financialization, capital accumulation. Who accumulates the capital? Um, China is, well, a large amount of the US debt is actually China. So I mean, I'll leave it to others with much more knowledge than me. But obviously, value chains have an important dimension, uh, role to play in that. I think the next question is um, the, the shift of the global south. In very, very early days, I've just finished a project uh, two years, two years we were looking specifically at that. Um, I mean, uh, Rafi Kaplinsky, who's a great value chain, one of the sort of pioneers of value chain analysis, um, kind of years ago said so to me, you know, oh, Stephanie, you know, as soon as it goes, as soon as the production, the, the buyers are southern, nobody's going to be interested in the stuff you, the stuff you do. Um, I mean, I, I got very well with him by the way. <laughs> <laughs> we have these debates, you know, um I, I, I do keep reminding him I worked with him for a long time at ideas and I first worked with him he said why are you, why are you interested in fair trade it's not not percent of trade I said well it might be but I think it's important and I, I'm committed to it even if it doesn't go anywhere I do remind him of that now that in certain commodities it's, it's sort of 10% or plus or whatever of international trade in those commodities uh, and then he says, you know, well, you can't always get it right. <laughs> so, anyway, um, I think it's just too early to, to tell. One of the things that really did come up is some of the... Af- I, I really focused in on Africa. You're getting the same going on in Asia and Latin America. Others are looking at that. Um, one of the things that really did come up, uh, though, is that the majority of, with some exceptions, Woolworths, Fashini, there are some exceptions in there, the majority of the African retailers and the African brands rely on public legislation. And public legislation is quite good uh, uh, depending on where you're sourcing. So if you're a South African retailer and you're sourcing from Lesotho of course it's got much lower levels of legislation and, and you've got all kind of issues of cheaper labour. So it's complex, it's not straightforward but one of the things the suppliers always said to us is that now now we used to make, these are the export suppliers, the people that produce for export. In the past, we we were under the you know we are really under the clamps of the big retailers. What they told us to do, we had to do. Now we've got options. So um, you know many of the companies don't have private standards, but we can decide to sell to them instead issue, though, is this quality issue. Because even if they don't have full standards, what suppliers also said to us is they struggle to get workers that will meet quality. And even the regional value chains, the buyers want quality. To get quality, you do need workers with a certain level of literacy, a certain level of uh, numeracy, and a certain level of ability to... It's not just that you produce a good, but how you produce it. And, and to get better workers, they have to pay more. So it might not be through the social standards, but through other pressures that we did so. So it's not straightforward. What the actual outcome is very difficult to tell, but it, it wasn't all bad news. So Rafe is saying, oh, it'll matter. Um, two of the big South African retailers are in the, at the UK Ethical Trade Initiative, Mr. Price. Which is a lower end, middle, mid, mid end uh, clothing retailer, and Woolworths, which is the top end, both of which operate across all of Africa. The so, too, too early to tell. Oh, the Rana, uh, Bangladesh. I mean, it's it, it's yeah, Rana Plaza. So, what do they do? I mean, there was an audit going on. If you want the failure of voluntary codes, Rana Plaza was audited about a month, six weeks before. Uh, Social audit about before the collapse, um, perfect, no problems. <laughs> Ticked off, 1,000 workers plus were killed um, about six weeks later. Um, and then all the brands moved in big time. Um, some denied sourcing from Rana Plaza, others accepted it. You know, high Markets Due, which has got into a lot of trouble over, had previously got into a lot of trouble, they immediately said, Yes, we were sourcing. And immediately got involved in a compensation fund, and uh, you know, what, um, and, and setting up the kind of programs that were then established, which focused on fire safety. But have they increased the wages? No. And now look what's going on in Bangladesh as we speak, literally. Three, or four workers have already been shot. Women workers. I think they were all women. Um, certainly, the last two were women um and and who's opposing the pay increases it's the, it's the government and well they're trying to set a, a pay increase which is way below the living wage that's what the fight is over um, and the Bangladeshi factory um, owners uh, are opposing the increase in the living wage and but of course, there's a very close relationship there, because a lot of Bangladesh factory owners are linked to a piece of So there, there is a very close connection there. But what is interesting is some of the brands, H&M, Zara, uh, I, think, I think that, just double check, it's in the Guardian, you have to read the Guardian, have said they do support an increase in the living. Do they have a policy of moving towards a living wage? Yes, absolutely fine, brilliant. Are you going to pay the price increase to the suppliers? Because if they paid the price increase, I don't think you'd find the Bangladesh garment factory owners would be so opposed to it. Because at the moment, if it's current system, the only people, if the wages do go up even more, they're the ones that are going to get even, even more squeezed. So ultimately, and this is where I think the civil society, the international civil society campaigns are critical, is to put the pressure on the big brands and say, you've got to pay a living wage. And I think that's where it is now. I mean, we could go further into it because there's a whole issue of pre-competitive. Because don't forget, a lot of this is sourced from the US. um, And any agreement between the brands is at risk of violating uh, uh, competition law in the US. Uh, The only way of making it pre-competitive is the government puts the legal minimum up to a living wage. Um, so, it's a complex situation, but the brands at least can come in and say, we will pay a um, higher price and they've not committed to that, as far as I'm aware. Maybe some have. But that is where you've really got to, and the campaigns are.
0: Do you want to say anything? Just
3: one very quick thing about South-South trade. It's also important to think about how women's work in value chains and the expansion of South-South value chains affect things beyond the value chain. And I just want to give an example of ShopRite in Nigeria. So ShopRite came into Nigeria, I don't know, five, ten years back. But one of the core effects it had was, because it sells a lot of household goods, is to put all of the women who were selling household goods, uh, tin tomatoes, um, small uh, soup ingredients, etc., out of business and they hated it because all the profits that ShopRite made went back to South Africa, whereas local women made profits that supported households in that area. So, thinking about how value chains also recirculate the profits of things and may take even if it's women working at the bottom of the value chain, may take money away from other types of jobs outside the value chain.
0: OK, so I know we have one question from this lady here. Are there any other burning? And um, OK. Maybe very, very quick questions. Thank
4: you so much for think I have two questions, but one is a yes and no. So almost one one. Uh, one first is, um, about traceability in the global value chains, and the question is, do you buy it? Do you believe it? Um, and the second is to do more with like the pathways to upgrading for workers, and especially at the bottom of the chains. Because you mentioned sort of within the same um, sort of list as you know the actual resistance by the workers, but also the fact that upgrading is possible through like potential NGOs um, or civil society through the, like more institutions. And I was wondering if you could
0: reflect on the differences with it OK, and the lady at the very back in the white scarf. And do try to be quick, because we don't have much time. Thank you so much
4: for your presentation. Uh, I just wanted to ask you about the role
0: One last question. I know I'm being very uh, unrealistic. Um, Yeah, I
4: just wanted to ask what measures can be taken to redistribute the risks in the global value chains? And do you see it possible from a national level?
1: only really have full traceability, uh, traceability for fresh produce right the way down. That's because if you went to a supermarket now and bought some fresh produce, consumed it we were dead in the morning, as long as they've got the barcode of the product, they could trace it not only down to the farm, but also down to the plot, and if they wanted to, down to the individual workers who were involved in harvesting it or doing stuff. So yes on some products. On, on, on a limited number of products, on the rest, no. Um, basically, and this is going to be a major issue for this EU human rights due diligence and um, due diligence law. So I think traceability can be, particularly as soon as you start mixing products <coughs> together, like cocoa or cotton, and so very difficult. Um, on the pathways to upgrading, yeah, it, uh, a a bit difficult to, to, I I mean, it it kind of goes back as well to the the next question, which is the cultural norms. I mean, one of the things that I really saw, and that's why in the end of the book is a lot of different case studies, is the variation is so enormous. And you can, even within a country, you can get very different outcomes in one location versus another location. Between countries, you get very different, very different in Africa to Asia. Especially and to Latin America. So, cultural norms really vary. The context is really important in terms of outcomes. Um, um, strategies work in one place, they don't work in another place. Um, I think civil society organizations have played a critical role, but ultimately, if you want to get into these value chains, as Kate said, and that goes back to that earlier point about women SMEs um, entering them, you know play by the rules of the game or you just won't survive. And those rules are that you, you drive costs down, drive price down, and, and take as much as you can. The only way in which some firms really do circumvent that is, is when they can get into niche and protect themselves. And then that goes on to that final, i oh sorry, just trying to be quick here. Measures to redistribute, risk, well, let's, let's expand that slightly, risk and value. Um, Individual buyers, suppliers, it's very, very hard to do. In certain circumstances, governments can, and there is a massive fight going on at at the moment.